Don't you love the excitement of new things? Don't you? We're quickly approaching the annual day when we will all enjoy many new things and new gifts that people give us. And not to stress you out or excite you too much, but there are now 23 days till Christmas. <laughs> but unwrapping new presents that we get is undeniably exciting for both the giver and the receiver. Even just taking packaging off some new toy or tool that we get can make our hearts beat a little bit faster. New technologies that come out like computers or phones end up being faster and more efficient than old ones we have. Some new things even come with a wonderful new smell, like the new car smell, right? <laughs> it always seemed to me growing up that my grandparents' cars always had the new car smell. I don't, I don't know why that was. Perhaps it was the lack of kids and spilled snacks and poopy diapers and things like that. But it always seemed that way. New things are less damaged. They smell better. They feel better. They're cleaner. They work better. They seem more fulfilling for some reason. I got a new winter jacket this week at a great Black Friday sale last week, and it is, it is significantly cleaner and better smelling than my last one. <laughs> it also is a lot warmer. It's great. It's the excitement of a new thing. However, the excitement of something new wears off after a while, doesn't it? Everything old that you own used to be new at some point, didn't it? Now it's old. Old houses, old cars, old clothes, old phones, old computers, old tools. Do you remember when all these things used to be new and shiny and exciting? It's just a fact of nature that physical things get old. They get weathered and, and smelly and rusted, or they wear out. They wear down, they slow down, or they break down. And the excitement of our new thing dissipates. Well, what if I were to tell you that Jesus brought something new to earth, but the excitement of this new thing that he brought was meant to never wear off? Okay? We believe Jesus did this. He brought something new to earth that should never get old. It never gets weathered. It never gets smelly or rusted. It never wears out. It never wears down. It never slows down, and it never breaks down. But sometimes I think we think of our faith, we think of our faith as an old-fashioned faith, as faith in something old, that following Jesus doesn't have that new smell. Or that being a Christian is not as exciting or fulfilling as it once was. I think that's tragic. Because that is not how true Christianity should become. True Christianity, following Jesus with our whole hearts, never should get old in our lives. Today we're going to go to Scripture and you're going to see what Jesus brought that is so new and exciting. And what, we'll see why we should be thrilled each and every day to be following him. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 5, verse 33. If you have a pew Bible in front of you, that's on page 861, I believe. Luke chapter 5, verse 33. This will be our last Sunday in Luke until the new year. 
and we'll finish up chapter 5 today. We're making some progress, okay? I'd like to begin our look, though, into this interesting passage by praying for us. So would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. As we come to study it, I pray that you would open our eyes and that you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say to each one of us. We know that it can change our lives if we let it. So I pray that we would see, that you would give us discernment to see our lives with new eyes, to see how we can be following you better and really enjoying your sacrifice for us even more, seeing your love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you were with us last week, you'll remember the passage before this that Jesus had just called Levi to be his disciple. And Levi, this hated tax collector, had gotten up and left everything behind to follow Jesus. And after this, Levi threw a party in Jesus' honor and invited all his friends. And when the religious leaders complained about it, Jesus rebuked them. And he said this in verse 31 of chapter 5. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So basically, Jesus came to save those who needed him most. He called sinners to repent, not those who thought they were already righteous. We studied all of that in depth last Sunday. And now we come to verse 33, and Jesus isn't done with controversies. In fact, this is the third of five straight controversies that Luke records for us. Starting back a couple weeks ago when we saw the paralytic and the controversy of Jesus forgiving sins, and then the controversy of associating with sinners at Levi's party, and then this one, which we'll study today, and then two more right at the beginning of chapter 6 dealing with the Sabbath. And in Luke's putting all these stories together, it shows how controversial Jesus was getting. He wasn't fitting in with all the status quo or the cultural or religious norms in Palestine at all. And verse 33 tells us this. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Now, this is probably not a continuation of the account of Levi's party. The they in verse 33 is not the religious leaders from the previous passage, most likely, but just a generic, some people came and said this to Jesus. Matthew's gospel actually says that the people talking to Jesus here were John's disciples. We studied John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin and forerunner in Luke 3. And we know John the Baptist also had some disciples or followers of his own, people who were, were devoted to learn about God from John. And so they followed John around, listening to him, listening to his teaching, attempting to emulate John's example in their own lives. But as they followed John, they also had their eye on Jesus. After all, John had spoken of Jesus as being greater than himself, as the Messiah. They had to keep an eye on him. And John's disciples saw Jesus, or saw Jesus selecting disciples of his own and calling them to follow him. But something they saw Jesus and his disciples doing bothered them. Now, this could have happened at the same time as Levi's party or soon after. Perhaps the party had bothered the religious leaders one way and these disciples in another. But they came to Jesus 
here and said, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. The Pharisees and scribes we saw last week had issues with Jesus eating and drinking with sinners. Now, John's disciples had issues with Jesus' disciples eating and drinking at all. Now, really, John's disciples weren't complaining about them eating and drinking. They were wondering about their lack of fasting. Did you see that? The core of their complaint, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. So do the disciples of the Pharisees. But instead of fasting, yours eat and drink. Fasting, of course, refers to going without food or drink for a set period of time. Now, the title that the ESV gives this passage is a question about fasting. But this was more than just a question. I see a complaint here, even an accusation. They were publicly accusing Jesus' disciples of something they saw as wrong. If there is a question implied in this passage, it was, you aren't fasting, what gives? Okay? Now, we might think today, well, what's the big deal? What's the big deal about fasting? Why were they complaining about this? Well, fasting was considered as a highly regarded act of worship. In this day, there was a number of nationwide fasts that happened throughout the year. For example, on the Jewish day, the Holy Day, the Day of Atonement, many people would fast to commemorate that day. The past destruction of Jerusalem was commemorated with four fasts each year. People fasted during times of mourning or penitence for sins. And the Pharisees had actually developed a whole weekly cycle of fasting. They fasted every Monday and Thursday of every week. Okay? And usually, fasting was intrinsically tied to prayer. So if you wanted to pray with extra emphasis, extra seriousness, you'd fast while you prayed. The popular view was that if you were spiritual or religious or godly, you would fast often, even more than everyone else doing it. Now, fasting in Scripture, when we read about it, it is generally considered a good thing to do. It's a what you could call a religious activity that is beneficial. But it can get too legalistic, and that's what happens here. Fasting could be considered, maybe, you could say, how similar to how Christians view things like Scripture reading or church attendance today. That would be similar parallels. Like, if you're serious about your faith, You'll do this. There are beneficial things for us to do, but we don't call them rules. They're not requirements. But fasting in this day was a major way to exhibit your faith, and Jesus and his disciples weren't doing it. And this really bugged these guys. Why in the world weren't they fasting? They were, in fact, doing the opposite. They were eating and drinking at huge parties. And as they looked at Jesus' ministry, what they saw, there was way too much celebratory feasting and not nearly enough spiritual fasting. That's what they were seeing. You get the heart, though, of what these guys are complaining about? They were concerned that Jesus and his disciples weren't being religious enough. That was the heart of their complaint. These men looked around, And everyone they saw that was a devout, religious disciple 
fasted regularly and frequently. As John the Baptist's disciples, they fasted regularly. As the, and they saw the Pharisees, and they had disciples, and they fasted regularly. But then they looked at Jesus and his disciples, and they weren't doing it. They weren't fasting. Eating and drinking was just the surface issue, the tip of the iceberg. Really, the main complaint was that Jesus and his disciples weren't being properly religious. So the question was, Jesus, you and your disciples aren't being religious enough. What gives? Now, I have to warn you, Jesus' response can be really confusing for us to try to understand. Jesus gave four parables to answer this accusation. Parables, if you don't know, are short metaphorical stories that make a spiritual point. But as we read this, the fact is, Jesus' response is a culturally cryptic reply. The people in his day would have understood what it meant. It would have been simple enough for them. But for us, in a different culture, 2,000 years later, it's much more difficult. It's one of those passages that we might read and, and think, I have no idea what he's talking about, so let's just move on to the next story, shall we? <laughs> so let's, we're gonna, what we're going to do is we're going to read the passage as a whole, and then we'll try to decode it together, what it actually means, what it meant for Jesus and his disciples, and what it means for us today. Okay, starting in verse 33 again. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does... He will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. End of story. <laughs> See what I mean? Most of this passage just inspires questions. Questions like, what in the wineskins is Jesus talking about? <laughs> is it too late to skip ahead to chapter 6 and start studying that instead? <laughs> What's the point? I'm glad you asked. I've got three for you. <laughs> Here's the first point we see in this passage through Jesus' metaphor about a wedding, okay? And that is this. Jesus has brought a new era of joy to the earth. Jesus initiated a new era on earth that should be filled with with joy. Let's follow the train of thought here. Remember, they're complaining that Jesus' disciples weren't religious enough. They're too celebratory and not somber enough to be spiritual. So Jesus said, verse 34, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. To help you with the metaphor, the wedding guests represent Jesus' disciples, okay? And the bridegroom, which we generally just call the groom today, represents Jesus. The imagery of God as a bridegroom, as the bridegroom of his people, is a frequent one throughout Scripture. We see it time and time again. And here, Jesus was basically saying that a wedding celebration was going on right then. That the groom had come, presumably with his bride, and the guests had begun to party. However, 
In Jesus' day, fasting was commonly associated with mourning or grieving. That's why people fasted to commemorate Jerusalem's destruction. Or why they fasted to show that they were sorry for their sins. Or why they fasted if they were desperate for God to answer a prayer. In Matthew 6, 16, Jesus talked about people who fasted and made themselves look sad. Okay? On purpose. In order to look gloomy, they disfigure their faces somehow and walk around town with a frown. And that was supposed to show that they were extra spiritual. For some reason, they had developed the belief that spirituality required sadness. Now, when you go to a wedding, what's the atmosphere like there? Somber? Sad? Depressing? I sure hope you haven't been to many weddings like that. (laughs) No, a wedding is a celebration. It's a party. It's joyful, happy, exciting. And there's usually a great meal that's shared together, eating and drinking and toasting and dancing. Well, maybe not at Baptist weddings, but... (laughs) The same was the case in Jesus' day. Weddings were big, joyful celebrations. And weddings went on for days at a time. Usually the wedding feasts were at least a week long. Weddings always included huge feasts of food and drink. And get this, no one would miss out on a good wedding celebration, even the Pharisees. A rabbi from that day said that all in attendance on the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances which would lessen their joy. So basically, the rule was, if you were at a wedding, you had to celebrate. You weren't allowed to be sad. And if fasting would lessen your joy, you couldn't fast during a wedding. That was was the general cultural rule. Now, you know how when you go to a wedding and after the ceremony there's a reception and there's always some time of waiting at the reception for the happy couple to arrive. Maybe they were taking pictures, maybe they were shaking hands, maybe they were making out in the limousine. But, but there's that time, that window of time before they arrive. Now, in that window of time, is anyone partying? Not really. Does anyone break out the fancy meal before they arrive? Never. Everyone might be sitting around, getting settled, making small talk. Sometimes it can be a super long and awkward wait time, but everyone is not party. The party doesn't begin until the happy couple arrives. But when they do arrive at the reception, they make a big, grand, happy entrance, their names are announced, and then the party really gets going. Well, you could say that the Jews before Jesus came were in that waiting time. They were waiting for the celebration to begin, waiting for the groom to arrive at the wedding. And many people often fasted to show that they were waiting for the Messiah. There was that longing for the Messiah to come. But Jesus was saying that as the groom, he had arrived at the wedding feast. That's what he says in verse 34. He says, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? So, it was not a time for fasting out of sorrow. It was a time for feasting out of joy. It was like Jesus said, you were waiting for me to arrive, 
but I'm here now. Fasting was appropriate before I came, but now it's time to celebrate. Jesus instituted a new era of joy on earth. Because Jesus has come, we have been given a deep joy that should never wear out. The groom has come. The wedding celebration has begun. No longer should we think that spirituality equals sadness. In fact, because joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit, the more spiritual you are, the more joyful you become. Now something Jesus said in verse 35 would have been really puzzling to the people listening in. He said, verse 34, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. This is, a, this is a crazy picture. The picture is of a groom being taken away from his own wedding celebration. The Greek word used for taken away implies an act of violence. So picture a groom at his wedding feast, sitting at the feast, laughing and, and drinking and kissing his bride every time someone tinkled the glass and, and celebrating. When all of a sudden, this gang of thugs run into the wedding, maybe organized criminals or some kind. They run in, knock him out, put a bag over his head, drag him off, and kidnap him at gunpoint. It's a crazy picture. A groom kidnapped from his own wedding? What? This would have been quite the riddle for Jesus' original hearer. But when Luke wrote this after Jesus, it would have been easily understood by those reading this. Jesus said, verse 35, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. What do you think he's talking about here? This was looking ahead to the day when Jesus would be violently taken away. That, see, Jesus eventually became so controversial the Jews had him arrested and executed. But really, if you think about it, this death that Jesus experienced was the greatest display of love that the groom ever showed his bride. You could say, to keep the metaphor going a bit further, you could say that the, when the kidnappers came to take the groom away, they hadn't intended to take him. They came to take the bride. Since somehow the bride was the one mixed up with these criminals and an organized crime, and she had gotten on their bad side. So they were coming to get her. But when they came to take her, the groom intervened and, and insisted, no, no, don't take her. I love her. Take me instead. And so the groom was taken away from his own wedding feast and killed. And even though Jesus came back to life three days later, he left, he left earth soon after that, leaving his disciples behind without his physical presence among them. Church, we are the bride we're the bride of Christ. Jesus died 
taking our rightful place. We had sinned and should have been the ones taken away from the wedding, but Jesus was instead. And then Jesus rose, ascended into heaven, and gave this promise to return one day to begin a wedding feast. It will never end. Based on these verses, a question we have to ask is, well, what era are we in now? He said, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So are we in the era of joy that Jesus brought to earth, or are we again in a time for fasting? I believe the answer is both. We are in an era meant for both joy and fasting. On the one hand, Jesus has already come and freed us from sin. He's, he died, but he also rose again. He came back to life. And, he, and we celebrate the fellowship of the Lord's table together. We join in meals together. On the other hand, we are once again waiting for our groom to return. In a sense, the wedding has begun, but it hasn't been completed. And until Christ returns, we wait and pray and hope and can rightfully fast again. Philip Ryken says, We are still waiting for our bridegroom, and until he returns, we fast and pray for the coming of his kingdom. We have a hunger for joy that will not be fully satisfied until Jesus comes again. So Jesus has brought a new era of joy to the earth, and we should celebrate that. But we also wait for his eventual return to earth to take his bride away. This is why we celebrate the season of Advent still. Think about it. The season of anticipating the arrival of a Messiah. We take the time to remember the days of waiting for Jesus to come to earth. And we celebrate that he has come to earth as a human baby. But we also remember that we're still waiting for the Messiah to come again. So we sing, like, come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. The hymn goes on to call Jesus the joy of every longing heart. The joy of every longing heart. There is joy and there is longing at the same time. After verse 35, Jesus wanted to drive his point home about the newness that he brought to earth. So he gave three short illustrations about mixing old and new things together. And I think all the talk about a wedding probably inspired his next metaphors. After all, people went to weddings dressed in fancy clothes, and they enjoyed nice wine there. And so Jesus talked about clothes and wine. Verse 36, he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Stop there. Again, we read these verses and think, what's the point? I don't get it. Here's what I believe Jesus is saying with these two parables. That's this. Jesus has provided a new way to please God with our lives. 
Jesus has provided a new way for us to please God with our lives. Now you might hear that and think, what? How do you get that point from those verses? (laughs) Let me explain. Remember the original complaint again that these people brought to Jesus. They were essentially saying that Jesus and his disciples weren't being religious enough. They weren't fitting in with the cultural norms. They weren't being good Jews. What Jesus was saying here is that he wasn't ever meant to fit within their religion. Jesus didn't come to fit nicely into Judaism. He came to bring something new and something better. And what he was saying with the metaphors of clothes and wine was that you couldn't mix the old and the new together. It wouldn't work. And if you tried to fit Jesus into the old Jewish religion, it wouldn't work. In fact, trying to combine Judaism and Jesus would end disastrously. That's his point. Think of the first parable this way. Say you had a favorite pair of jeans that you wore all the time, okay? You wore them everywhere. Home, school, church, the gym, restaurant, shopping, wherever you went, you wore these jeans. And these pants you had for several years in a row, and they got they were your favorite pair. They're very trustworthy. And but as you kept wearing them and they got older, they inevitably got worn down. Okay? The sun faded them significantly. They started to fray in different places. Imagine that one day you're getting out of your car and your pants got caught or snagged on the car door as you closed it and ripped a big hole in the leg. Can you picture that? Now you have a choice to make. You can either keep wearing the old torn jeans the way they are. You can try to fix them. Or you can try to, or you can go out shopping and buy a brand new pair of jeans. I think those are your three options as long as you want to go out of the house wearing pants. But let's say, out of the three options, you decided to take the route of fixing the old pair of pants, okay? You wanted to keep your old pair, but you wanted to fix them. But how you did this was you went out to the store, bought a brand new pair of jeans, and then you took the brand new pair of jeans and a big pair of scissors and cut a big patch out of the new pair of jeans and then sewed the new patch over the big hole in your old pair of jeans. Okay? Can you picture that? That makes a lot of sense, right? It solves your problem. No more hole, and you still get your favorite pair of jeans. No, 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 that's crazy. And it's an it's a absurd way to fix your old pants. If you buy a new pair of jeans, the no-brainer thing to do is to wear them. <laughs> but instead, you'd ruin both the new pair of jeans while not really fixing the old. Instead, you'd have a big patch of fabric on your old jeans that doesn't match at all. And you'd have this worthless pair of new jeans with a huge hole cut out of it. Either you should wear the old with its flaws or, new, or wear, buy the new and wear it, but you can't mix the old and the new. That's what Jesus was saying with the parable of the patched garment here. It's meant to be ironic and absurd. He says that no one actually does this. Verse 36, he says, No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. That's what he's saying. Here's the thing. Many people in Jesus' day 
We're trying to treat Jesus like a patch. That's what they were doing. They liked what they heard him teach. They thought they could pick and choose from what they heard. And they could take what they heard and add it to their old Jewish religion, thinking that he could fix some holes that they saw in it. But you can't mix and match the gospel of Jesus Christ with man-made religion. It not only doesn't work, it's destructive for both. Jesus wasn't there to fix the old way of doing things, to fix the law, to fix Judaism. Jesus was there to provide something new and improve. Jesus was basically saying, you have all these religious ways of trying to please God. I'm here to tell you they don't work. You can't please God on your own. There's nothing you can do to make God happier with you. But, I'm here to provide a way. I'm here, a new and a better way, a way that works. See, I'm going to live my life in a way that is perfectly pleasing to God. And then through my death, I will offer you my own righteousness. And if you accept that gift, only then can your life truly be pleasing to God. Now, not everything about religion is bad. Christianity is, in some ways, a religion. But religion is not how we please God. It's not how we earn his favor. We only get God's grace and mercy and love because Jesus earned it for us. Let me ask, have you tried to patch Jesus onto your own man-made religion? Tried to use him as a patch? Are you still trying to make God happy with you by doing things for him? Like reading your Bible, going to church, serving people, giving money. It's not going to work. And you think, well, wherever I fall short, Jesus will make up the difference. You can't please God with your tired religious activities. You can't. Jesus doesn't just make up the difference. He's not part of the way. Jesus is the way. He is the only way that we can please God with our lives. We cannot patch him onto our old clothes. We've got to change our clothes. We love and we serve and we give and we study and we pray and we fast out of grateful overflow for Jesus. Not in order to be good and religious and spiritual and pleasing to God. Jesus' second parable here has the same point in verse 37. It says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Now, I don't believe that any of you 
work in the wine business today. And even if you did, it'd be pretty different than the way it was done in Jesus' day. They didn't have nice glass bottles then. So people stored wine in what they called wineskins. And wineskins were actually made from skins. That's why they're called wineskins. Usually from the skins of sheep or goats. So an animal would be killed, the hide would be skinned off, the hair would be removed, and then it would be sewn together to make a container for wine. And the neck of the animal would end up serving as the neck of the container. So that's what a wineskin was. And as the wineskins aged, so as they got older, they became more and more brittle. Now you may know this. Wine is a fermented drink, and as a drink ferments, what does it do? It expands. Okay? Old wine doesn't ferment as much as new wine. So if you were putting new wine into a wineskin, the wineskin had to be able to expand to make room for the fermentation. New wineskins could expand some. They were still elastic enough. Older, brittle wineskins couldn't. So that's why Jesus says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. It will burst the brittle skins of the old one, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And what he meant by this was that the old religion was like old wineskins. But Jesus, in his new way, was like new wine. And if you tried to fit Jesus into the old religion, it wouldn't work. In fact, it's the same as the previous illustration. It would ruin both. The old wineskins would break, and the new wine would be spilled. Daryl Bach says that the point is simply that the gospel cannot be contained within Judaism without destroying both. It's impossible to fit the gospel of Jesus into the old wineskin of man-made religion. And yet sometimes we try to add religious behavior back into our faith. We try to do what you could be called re-Judaizing Christianity. We say salvation is through Jesus alone and Yet, but we need to do this as well. In essence, we add laws to the gospel. We make up rules and requirements for Christians. But Jesus plus anything guts God's grace. Jesus plus anything guts grace. Maybe we're not trying to fit Jesus into Judaism, but we're trying to fit Jesus into our own traditions and expectations and rules and regulations. Jesus' new wine is the wine of relying on his righteousness alone to please God. We cannot pour it into the old wineskins of made-up rules and regulations. So stop trying to. Now, the final verse of the passage is yet one more confusing one. Verse 39 says, And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good, or the old is better, some translations say. 
We wonder, wait a second, if Jesus has been comparing himself to new wine, why does he finish by talking about people who actually prefer old wine? Well, that's exactly his point. He's pointing out a problem that some people don't want him. They don't desire him. They'd rather have the old. Jesus kept the wine imagery going, but this is a new picture, and it makes one final point. I put it this way in your notes, that Jesus offers a new and better life that may be refused. Jesus' new and improved and better life can be refused by people who don't desire him. This is meant to end on a tragic note. Jesus intended it that way. Verse 39 And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Jesus was saying that some people were addicted to the way things were. Many people had already drunk from the old wine, and they liked it. They liked things the way they were. Their taste buds were accustomed to man-made religion. They didn't see their need, so they didn't want to change. Basically, they're saying, I'm happy with the way things are, so why would I try something new? The old is good enough. I don't want anything new. The tragic part of this is that they were missing out on the new, better life in Jesus. By insisting on keeping things the way they were, really, they missed out on true life. What they had wasn't life at all. Maybe this way today. You enjoy your life. You enjoy the way that you do religion. You're happy going to church every now and then to make sure you're good with God. You might even give some money to the church or fill up an Operation Christmas Child box. You've set up certain rules for yourself so that you don't do anything that's too wrong. I'm not going to go murder someone. And you think that your religion is good enough for you. But choosing to say to Jesus, I am desperately in need of you. I can't do this on my own. I want to repent of my sins and I want you to change my life. That's too much can't do that. As a matter of fact, you don't want Jesus to change anything. You want him to fit nicely into your life. And Jesus would say, you have the right. You have the right to be unwilling to try my new and better wine. You're free to refuse me. But unfortunately, your story will have a tragic ending. Because that religion has never and will never be enough. Don't reject Jesus just because you prefer to keep the status quo. His new wine is way better than any kind of religion you can conjure up.
Take my word for it. But better yet, take Jesus' word for it. His new light way of life is filled with joy. It's freeing from sin and condemnation and religious duty. Jesus has done it all. There is no more need to work to please God. God did an incredibly new and glorious thing through sending Jesus to earth. And the newness of this wonderful gift should never wear off. His mercies are as new today as they were the day that Christ was born. And the day that Jesus spoke these words. May we continually celebrate the newness of Jesus Christ. The joy he brings, the righteousness he gives, and the better way of life he offers. I don't believe there's a better place to finish our service today than around the Lord's table. We're not fasting today. The Lord's table does two things. It points us backward to the sacrifice that Christ made for us on the cross. That's why we eat bread representing his broken body for us. It also points us forward. Scripture tells us to practice and remember this sacrifice until he returns. Until he returns. We are still in the midst of waiting for the groom to return. It also reminds us of the new covenant of Christ that he made with his church. As Jesus gave his disciples the wine to drink, he said it represented the new covenant in his blood. It was a new covenant. Again, wine represents newness. So every time we drink the cup in communion, we are to remember that we are under a new wonderful covenant in a new era of joy and freedom from sin. So let's remember these things and we'll celebrate them with joy as we gather around the Lord's table.